I've asked God to forgive me, but I realize there's something deeper in my heart that's against my highest desire. It's like I want to do good, and I do good often. I'm doing right outwardly, but inwardly, there's something warring against the Jesus I love. Good morning, and welcome to God's Resistance. Thank you for tuning into God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. We are local in the Wyoming Valley in the Wilkes-Barre area. What we're looking to do is to start small groups so that we can talk about spiritual matters and look at the Bible together. We're trying to be disciples and make disciples. If you would like to have a Bible study, please contact us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at God's Resistance. That is G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. Make sure to like and follow us for video content, teaching, and preaching. You can also find us on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe and turn on the bell to be notified of any new videos. If you need something, please also email us at gods.resistance at gmail.com or give us a call at 570-362-7782. Let's listen in on today's briefing. Last week, we talked about that wilderness wandering experience oftentimes that Christians may find themselves in after being saved. We also talked about the wilderness of the backslider. But today, we're going to be talking about realizing the need for a holy heart. And we're going to be using Romans chapter 7 for us to look at this more in depth. Now, a little bit of context here in the Roman church, there was a schism between Jew and Gentile. The Jews expelled were expelled from Rome by an edict, the uh, Emperor Claudius, and then they were allowed to come back. And so you can find that there, the Jews had been gone for quite a while, the Gentile church was doing their own thing for a little bit, and then the Jews get reintroduced some years later. They were both in need of salvation, the Jew and the Gentile. Gentiles were tempted to lawlessness, and the Jews were tempted towards law as salvation. However, both need to be justified through faith. And more in our immediate context, Romans 6 was just describing to a saved person the privilege and the necessity to go on to holiness of heart. And we're told that if we were truly baptized into Jesus or born again, we were buried with him. There's no more sinning, for we are dead to sin as Jesus died unto sin once. We are then told to yield to righteousness just as we did to sin, for righteousness leads to holiness. When you see the wonderful picture painted before you that you can be freed from all sin, what a hunger should develop in your heart. All zeal has been stirred now to seek holiness. You are saved and determined to do what God says. You love what God says. His commandments are your delight. Yet the tendency seems to be that you will now try to be holy in your own fleshly strength. You cannot train the old man to be holy because he is the enemy of God in true holiness. It is true that we have to obey God, but that obedience should be the result of true faith and not the means to obtain true faith. Obedience springs from faith, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Nevertheless, it almost naturally happens 
that we seek holiness through works and not through faith. Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now perfected by the flesh? So the whole of this chapter shows in Romans chapter 7 that holiness is from faith in Christ. This chapter is not so much dealing with whether or not one is saved, but the relation between the law and indwelling sin. Paul is speaking to save people here and using, after verse 7 in this chapter, his unregenerate or his unsaved state to describe the power and force of indwelling sin. If indwelling sin had this much power in my unregenerate state, do we think that we can tame it in our regenerate or saved state and somehow train the old man to obey God? We must give him up to Christ who can slay him once and for all. This chapter is not an excuse for sin. This person is dead earnest for holiness and is not in rebellion at all. When we look in this chapter, if you were to look in the original Greek, you can get an interlinear dictionary uh, to look at the English words on top of the Greek words. You would find that eight times there is this, uh, the, the word that we have translated sin is missing the word the in front of it. So instead of translating it like we have in our Bible, sin, it literally reads the sin. So it's distinctive in what it's talking about. Three times, there's a phrase denoting indwelling sin. And also, indwelling sin is named specifically 11 times. So I think it's safe to say that there is a teaching here about that nature of indwelling sin. Let's start in the first verse here. Romans 7, 1, know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, those that who, who have been saved, they've studied God's word with sincerity and truthfulness, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. So now he's talking about the marriage law. Uh, verse 2, for the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. So you can't look for holiness from the law and Christ, for that would be adultery. This is the application he's making. But if her husband, back to the marriage, if her husband be dead, she is free from that law. She's free from the law of marriage. So the parallel is, if you are dead with Christ, then you are free from the law to make, your, make you righteous, but you are not totally without the law because now you're under Christ's law. You're married to him now. So that, and then picking up in this verse, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So not married to the law anymore, we're dead to the law, and now we're married to another man, even Christ. This is the parallel. The fourth verse. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. A little later in the same book, Romans 10, 3, we read, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Remember a little while ago, it was talking about Christ for our justification. Now it's talking about Christ for our righteousness, for our holiness. Christ is the end of the law for holiness, for righteousness. The fifth verse of Romans 7. For when we were in the flesh, and that word in the original Greek is sarx, which means that unregenerate, unsaved state, 
For when we were in that unsaved state in the flesh, the motions of sins, in other words, the passions of that nature of sin inside, which were by the law or which were exposed by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. In the flesh here means that unsaved state, which uh, I told you about that Greek word is sarks. If you uh, find, there's a great book by A.M. Hills called Establishing Grace, and I've got a lot of help out of this from uh, the fourth chapter. The, The word motions here literally means roots. These bring the fruit of death. The root of sin inside of the heart brings forth actions of sin, which brings forth death. So when we are struggling with the carnal mind, Self is on the throne saying, I will obey God my way and in my strength, I can follow God's law. That's a noble motive and a noble undertaking. And that should be the natural desire of any saved soul. Let's move on to the sixth verse. But now we, having been set free from the law, having died to that in which we were held so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Does this sound like Paul is talking to an unsaved individual or to unsaved individuals? Look at these key words, having been set free, having died in which we were held. Remember, the point Paul is trying to make is not whether this person that he's describing is saved, but rather the effect of God's law on indwelling sin in the heart of people. So the law arouses carnality in us to activity, but it cannot free us from the power and presence of sin. Many commentators interpret it just this way, such as Albert Barnes, Daniel Whedon, Adam Clark, and Gaudet. They were talking about Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. So many of them understand this to mean this. This isn't a new teaching I'm making up. Paul speaks about the regenerate man without concerning himself with the question of how far the unregenerate heart or depravity still remains in the regenerate or saved believer. He describes man as he is by nature, man as he knew him. Here is the permanent essence of human nature since the fall, outside the action of faith. Thus is explained the use of the present tense without our saying that Paul describes his present state. He recalls with wonderful vividness his impressions of former days, when as a natural man and consequently also a legal Jew, he was struggling with the sin in his own strength without other aid than the law and consequently overcome by the evil instinct, the flesh. What he describes, then, is the law grappling with the evil nature, where these two adversaries encounter one another without the grace of the gospel. He regards himself as the normal example of what must happen to every man who, in ignorance of Christ or apart from him, will take the law in earnest. That was by a man, Gaudet. What an awesome exposition of this uh, section right here. So true righteousness is not do this and don't do this. True righteousness is be this and don't be that. It's no longer a list of rules, but a principle within or rather a person within. We now serve with a willing and loving heart and not with the bondage of fear of condemnation. Now it's no longer I have to obey the law in my own strength, but Christ in me will establish the law through faith. So sanctification will never be obtained by obedience to the law of God through our human powers. 
So in verse 7, this is the whole summation of what Paul's bringing up in these few verses here. Talking to believers, saying, You remember when you weren't saved in the motions of sins inside of your breast, having been set free, having died unto this and that which we were held. Now he's talking to them about this indwelling sin. You remember that, guys? That's what he's saying. So now he comes to the point of present application in Romans 7.7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. The law is not sin. Nay, I had not known, and here is that word, the sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Remember when I just said the sin? That is those, one of those untranslated words in the Greek, the, that's left out in our English versions. He said, I had not known the sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So if obeying the law does not make me holy, but rather seems to flare up my carnal heart and reveal and strengthen wicked passions within, is the law sin? No. The law exposes sin wherever it tries to hide. In this case, it is exposing indwelling sin, which is the fountain of all actions of sin. It's the corruption inside of the heart. Notice that coveting is inward here in this verse, and it cannot always be detected outwardly. Here's where he found out, I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Now there's something else going on. Verse 8, again, here's that untranslated word, but the sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, the sin was dead. So without the law, he didn't even know that indwelling sin existed. He thought he was fine. It's, this can be illustrated like this. You tell a child, don't touch that cookie. Their day can be going fine. The moment I tell them, don't touch that cookie, the first thing that, that is on their mind and the only thing that's on their mind is, I want to touch that cookie. I want that cookie. They may have not wanted it the entire day, but the moment now we told them we could, that they couldn't, they want it very bad. The very command not to do something seems to increase the desire to do it inwardly. The ninth verse, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, the sin revived and I died. So the commandment, the law of God, not only helps us to see that we are sinners and that we have sins sinned, but it also helps us to see that there is a fountain of sin. There's a corruption inside of the heart, the base of all of our motives, the foundation of all of our reasons of why we do things. He said, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, thus sin revived and I died. So Paul is talking about in his childhood innocence, he was alive without the law, blissfully unaware. And some people have this testimony. I was doing fine in my Christian walk until I read that I shouldn't do something anymore or that I needed to be a certain way. And then I found that there was still sin dwelling in my heart, even though I had not committed outward sin. Now we're going to be picking up in the 10th verse. It reads, And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. In other words, I knew that God's way was the right way, but I found when I tried to go that way, evil swelled up in my heart. The 11th verse, for the sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. 
So the law awakens the sin. The law awakens that evil propensity within. It is seen within him as personified here, a murderer, and it slew him. It killed him. Now that the commandment exposed my indwelling sin, I was deceived because I thought that trying to obey the commandments was the way to holiness, but I found it was the very thing that condemned me and made me feel more in despair. There was no life in the commandment, but I found death. Verse 12. Wherefore, the law is holy. So here's where the the conclusion he came to. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So he says, I know the law is good because I agree with it and I want to follow it. Verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. The law wasn't made death unto me. But the sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that the sin by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. That's the point of God's law. The law itself isn't death, but the indwelling sin within you works death because the enmity or the hostility against God within is trying to be subject to the law of God, but it can't be. It's vying for the throne instead of Christ being on the throne of my heart. Romans 8, 7 says, because the carnal mind is enmity or hostile against God, rebellious against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Barnes, Albert Barnes, the commentator says, the sentiment of the whole is that the tendency of the law is to excite the dormant sin of the bosom into active existence and to reveal its true nature. It is desirable that sin should be thus seen because one, Man should be acquainted with his true character. He should not deceive himself. And two, because it is one part of God's plan to develop the secret feelings of the heart and to show all creatures what they are. Remember, Paul asked the question in chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer was, God forbid. Does that positive declaration make sense with the interpretation of this chapter as the highest experience of a saved individual? Some people say, well, that's just the the Christian life. This is it right here. This section, verses 14 through 25, the commentator Lang says this, is the most hopeful state of the unsaved man and is the, the least desirable state of the saved man. So let's jump into the 14th verse. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under the sin. Having been sold under sin is an allusion to the fall, when Father Adam sold us all out for a mess of apples. The Greek is the perfect tense, as this man God be here translated in his version of the Bible, involving the whole human race in an original sin. So we were born with a bent towards sin, and if left to ourselves, without the aid of Christ, we'll naturally choose self and sin against our highest sense of what is right. This is not trying to make the point of whether or not the person is saved in this chapter, uh, but rather that God's law being spiritual and we're carnal at birth. The law is not at fault. The problem is in me. The problem is in you. Verse 15. For that which I do, and here's how this all came to be. This is the confusing mess that made this come to light. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. So here we find in this an unwilling captive. The power of indwelling sin as a tyrant is now revealed. 
in the heart of an unsaved person, this can evidence itself when your mind says, I want to be humble. And then I try to be humble. When I try to be humble, I found I find that I'm proud of my humility. I want to be kind and loving, but then I find that I have hatred and revenge behind my loving deeds. Or perhaps I want to be kind and loving because I want people to look at me and think that I'm so wonderful, that I'm so kind, and that I'm so loving. And I end up spoiling the very thing I was trying to seek after. Verse 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. The very desire to do the law proves that I think the law is good. Now then, verse 17. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So here's indwelling sin. Sin that dwelleth in me. Here's where the revelation of the existence of indwelling sin dawns upon Paul's consciousness. It dawns upon our consciousness if we can find any bit of the same experience in our life. The answer must be that it is sin dwelling in me. Verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, in my human body now here he's speaking of, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, I want to, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. If flesh here meant carnal heart, the logic would collapse. For in the same verse he would tell us that in his carnal heart dwells no good thing, but he also declares that he wills to do good. So where does this leave us? He must be telling us that the human flesh doesn't have strength to do the will of God unaided. In other words, he has all the desire of the world to obey God's law and finds that he can't obey it in its deepest essence. We find the will here battling with corruption. Those that are awakened, those it could be that those that are awakened find that they have no will to do what they feel like they're supposed to do. It can also be in the heart of somebody who's saved, who's got that double-minded battle going on, where they want to be living up to their highest good. And I'm not talking about they're they're living in a sinful life. They just realize there's corruption inside and their motives aren't pure. Romans, uh, let's move to the 19th verse here in Romans 7. For the good that I would, I do not. What I want to do, I find I'm not doing. But the evil which I would not, that I'm doing. Verse 20, now if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. His testimony in this verse is that the evil is ever present to menace, tempt, and antagonize him in his enterprises to glorify God. While this is true, we must remember his positive abnegation of all yielding to it and his repeated affirmation that this indwelling sin of its own spontaneity was really doing all the mischief in the case while he pleads constantly his own innocency. This is W.B. Godby uh, who had brought this point out. He's not saying that this man is living in sin and just sinning his life away and saying he's saved. He's saying that inside the fountain of his being is still corrupted and things aren't quite right. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. 23, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. What is the law of sin? The inward gravity of the soul towards all that is hostile toward the reign of God. This does not teach that sin dwells in our meat and bones. 
like the Gnostics would teach, but that inward corruption affects the whole of our being. So there is no part that has not been tainted from the fall. This is the mess that this was in. Whether or not this man saved is completely irrelevant at this point. What he's getting at is the strength of inward sin, the revelation of inward sin, the strength of inward sin, and how he is trying to war against it, and the power of indwelling sin is above and beyond his own human efforts to be over, uh, to, to overcome. So here's the remedy. Here's the point where this all comes up to a certain crux in the experience. Verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That's where he comes. That you don't, you don't find here somebody who's saying, oh, uh, I guess this is just my normal Christian life and this is how we keep living. This man's in desperate earnest to be free. I thank God, he said in verse 25, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the way out of this whole mess. The whole summation of the struggle between the law of sin and the law of God can be summed up this way. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. So the summation of Paul's findings through his experience is, without the slaying and cleansing of the inward corruption, indwelling sin, the sin, it is impossible to obey the law of God, though your mind consents to God's law, it's impossible to obey it in its depths, that it gets down to the wellspring of our motives. When we're saved, we can be doing the right things, and oftentimes we want to do the right things. But we also find that even when we're saved, though we don't sin outwardly, we're trying to obey God, and yet there's something inside, below choice, that seems to make it almost impossible for the motives of why we're doing things to be pure. And that is that corruption that's within. Uh, just a, a way of uh, helping or, or understanding something. In Roman time, if you murdered somebody, what they did was they strapped the victim, the dead body, to you, the murderer. And so when, Paul's, when Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He is alluding to this, the body of this death. This corruption inside of the heart is like a cancer, is like a dead body hanging from my front. Who's going to deliver me from this? And he has the answer. The answer is Christ. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So the only life of liberty is a life in whom the body of death has been severed from your being by Christ, and we now walk in the power of the Spirit. So where are you on your spiritual journey? Are you using Romans 7 as an excuse to keep on sinning and yet still call yourself a Christian? Romans 6 already says that we don't continue to sin that grace may abound. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. Or are you in the place where you find that you can't do your highest good? You can't be as holy as you'd like to because even though I do things right outwardly and I'm not sinning outwardly, inwardly, I find that there is a corruption inside of my heart. My motives aren't pure. When I try to do something loving and kind, it's because I want everyone to see how loving and kind I am. When I try to be humble, then I criticize everyone else because they're not quite as humble as I am. If that's where you find yourself, this is the function of the law. 
The law is trying not only to show us the sins that we've committed and that we need to repent, but it also is showing us where sin is hiding inside of our breast. It is also showing us that I have this corruption of sin that's on the throne of my heart that spoils all of my goods and my motives. So the beginning of Romans showed us that we cannot be justified by the law. We must be justified by faith. Romans chapter 7 shows us that we cannot be sanctified or made holy by the law either. The way that we are sanctified and made holy is also by the law. So he takes care of both needs. You and I need to be holy, and we cannot be holy by the law. We need to be holy by faith in Jesus Christ. Please tune in next Sunday at 9 a.m. If you like a copy of this broadcast, or if you need someone to talk to or pray with you, please contact us on Facebook and Twitter at God's Resistance. That is G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. Make sure to like and follow us for teaching, preaching, and video content. You can find us also on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe and turn on the bell to be notified of any new videos. You can also email us at gods.resistance at gmail.com or call us at 570-362-7782. Join the resistance. God's Resistance. A special thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission for the use of the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International Creative Commons license. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal code.